All right. We're now going to read God's Word. It's a longer passage, uh, so bear with me. But actually, before we do that, um, it's so funny. You know, I thought at some point I'd come down here and grab my stuff, but I'm going to do it right now. Um, I got to also, normally I like to kind of keep this hidden, but I can't really keep it hidden. It's a children's book. You have this very clear podium. (laughs) So I'm going to set this here. There's a children's book there if you're curious. Um, And I'm going to grab my sermon. Okay, so yeah, before we start this passage and pray, I think it's going to help us if I situate the passage within its context. So I don't know who preached here last or what they were preaching on, but this morning we're in John, and we're in John 6. Now John 6 is a really fascinating passage where Jesus, uh, just just preceding the passage that we're about to read, Jesus goes to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, goes to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he draws a crowd of 5,000 people to himself. Now, 5,000 people is a lot, you know, in Northwest. I mean, that's a huge crowd. But it's even more in the ancient Near East. To draw a crowd of 5,000 people is no joke. That's the dream of the philosophers of the Greco-Roman age, is to have a crowd of 5,000 people. And he takes, it's so incredible, all these people, they sit on the hillside, and his apostles, they come up to him, they're like, Jesus, you know, these people are hungry. They're starting to grumble. And Jesus is like, okay, well, we're going to take these five barley loaves, and we're going to take these two fish, and we're going to feed everybody. And the crowd is so amazed. They're so shocked in wonder of what Jesus has just done. He's just fed 5,000 people with a child's lunch that they come to make him king. And he notices this, and he, he fears what's about to happen because that's not... How Jesus is supposed to be king. Jesus Christ, those of you who know Christos, the anointed one, he is king. And that's not how he's going to be appointed as king. So there's an irony there. But anyways, what he does is he flees the crowd. And he goes across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And this is where our passage picks up. Our passage picks up, Jesus had a crowd of 5,000 people. He's just done an incredible miracle That's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's one of the only miracles recorded in all four Gospels. And then he goes to Capernaum. And what's going to happen is we're going to see he goes from 5,000 people to 12. He goes from Jesus, our king, goes from 5,000 people to 12. He drives everyone away because his teaching is so disturbing but this teaching is nourishing to our souls. So with that in mind, we're going to read the text. This is the word of our Lord. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how is it that he now says, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He's speaking of himself here. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's so disturbing. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, and the Greek word here is trogo, it means to gorge. Whoever gorges themselves, whoever gorges themselves on my flesh, and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. I'm going to pray real quick. One more time. Father, I pray that you would encourage us today with the message that your son spoke to his people 2,000 years ago. Would you enlighten our minds with the knowledge of Christ through the Holy Spirit and give us a willingness to be humbled as those who are hungry and thirsty for more, as a people who are not able to fill the vacuous sense of meaning and life that only you are able to give. Help us to know ourselves as a people who've received a gift of great value in your work. Make yourself known to us in your word, we pray. Amen. Bless you. This passage today intuitively presents a problem 
It presents a solution, and it offers the way in which that solution is applied. It presents a problem, a solution, and the way in which that solution is applied. This is going to be the guiding principles of the sermon today. Three points. The first, we have a problem. Humans have an unresolved hunger. Second, there's a solution. The bread of life satisfies. Third, the bread of life unsettles. The bread of life unsettles. We're going to start with this first point. First, humans have an unresolved hunger. So we're just going to take a moment to consider the main metaphor of hunger and thirst. The primary metaphor of this section is leveraging a presumed absence. To hunger and to thirst is to be without something. To desire satisfaction and to not have it. To ache for something missing. Now obviously, as a metaphor, Jesus isn't speaking of actual hunger for food or drink, but rather a sense of lack and longing. Every one of us have been born with a desire for something that cannot be fulfilled in everyday activities, in our leisures, which is a very Pacific Northwest thing, or in a seeking for positions of power, or in our vocations, or in our relationships available to us. There's an absence of something deeper and truly spiritual fulfilling. One philosopher, Blaise Pascal, fascinating guy, says this. He articulates it well when he says, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator. We are born with a desire to know God and to be known by God. We are born hungry for a homeland we don't even know how to seek. We are born with eternity in our hearts. We are born into a state of hunger. And this is the condition of our birth. And our entire lives are actually marked by this truth. And though it is this near universal agreement concerning this problem, this problem of existential hunger, the solutions that have been offered up in history are very diverse. Buddhism says that you overcome, and this is a little reductionistic, but you'll get the point. Buddhism says you overcome this hunger by becoming blind to it. But that doesn't actually work with real food. Try just ignoring your hunger for a few days, and you might become blind for all eternity. Albert Camus, a fascinating existential philosopher, really interesting guy, says you overcome hunger by making peace with its absurdity and laying it aside. You're That desire that you have for some objective truth, there is no objective truth. You have to lay it aside. The hunger is nonsense. That's one way to deal with it. Muslims attempt to overcome the hunger by their intensive labors of obedience. But if you know a faithful Muslim, you might hear something like this. I live in fear of my God because I cannot fulfill the law that's set before me. I think what Jesus teaches us this morning is that this hunger is good. It's built in to be satisfied by the one who is made to satisfy the hunger. C.S. Lewis 
Uh, my favorite author says this on the matter, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we're actually made for another world. I believe that Christ offers a compelling solution. The bread of life satisfies. This is the second point. The bread of life satisfies. We're going to take a moment to look at verses 41 through 51. This pulpit is also smaller than I'm used to. Um, all right, 41 to 51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus claims in this text that he is the bread of life who satisfies the hunger of his people and slakes their thirst. And I think there are two senses in this passage that we can see how he satisfies us. And these are terms by C.S. Lewis. There's a thick sense and there's a clear sense. There's a thick sense in which Christ as the bread of life satisfies. And there's a clear sense in which the bread of life satisfies. Now all of you are probably thinking, what is this, a clear sense and a thick sense? What is that? I've never heard that. Um, Again, this is from C.S. Lewis. He says this about thick and clear sense. It's actually kind of funny, the origin of this. He says, we can divide religions like we do soups into clear and thick. By thick, I mean those which have orgies and ecstasies and mysteries and local attachments. By clear, I mean those which are philosophical and universalizing and ethical. Now, if there is a true religion, still C.S. Lewis, it must be both thick and clear. Because the true God must have made both the child... And the man, the true God, must have made the savage and the citizen. The true God must have made the head and the belly. Christianity takes a savage convert and tells that person to obey an enlightened universalistic ethic. It also takes, and C.S. Lewis is still speaking of himself here, it also takes a 20th century academic prig like me and tells me to go fasting to a mystery and to drink the blood of the Lord. The savage convert has to be clear. And I, and I think all of us would probably be lumped into this, we have to be thick. Christianity is thick and clear. It is imminent and it's transcendent. 
Let's start with the clear of this passage. First, the bread of life satisfies in a clear sense. It is intellectually stimulating, and it answers the questions of humanity in a cohesive system of thought. Some of the major questions throughout the history of philosophy have looked like this. How do we reach beyond ourselves into the realm of absolutes? How do we as people change? If there is a God, how can we know him? This passage speaks to those things. Jesus confirms that there's something beyond our plane of existence. The issue that the Jews take issue with, um, the thing that the Jews take issue with, with Jesus here, is that he says, I'm from heaven. He comes from this place, this other, and he comes down to earth. There is an other beyond this physical, corporeal realm And Jesus' solution when it comes to knowing God, beyond the veil of what we can see, is this. God has to come down. He has to make himself known to us. He has to put on flesh. He has to become bread. Now there are more things that we could say about this passage in the Christian system of thought here. But suffice it to say that Jesus in this passage presents a portion of the beautiful, cohesive Christian worldview which sets this religion apart fundamentally from every other religion. Jesus affirms there's a God. He states that we cannot get to him, that we need God himself to come down to us. And he comes down as the bread of life. But the bread of life isn't just a cohesive philosophy. It's not just intellectually stimulating. It's not some hypothetical worldview. It's real and it's tactile. Jesus, as the bread of life, satisfies in a thick sense. He satisfies in a thick sense. So we, as physical creatures, need more than a philosophy. Regardless of what our cultural context says at this moment, we have an actual embodied guilt. We wrong one another We wrong ourselves, we wrong God, and to some extent, we kind of wrong our cosmos, the created world that we have been called to be stewards of. And guilt, normally, when we think of it in our context, we think of a feeling. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt as a feeling can accompany what guilt actually is. Historically, what guilt has been referred to is a legal deficit. If you run a stop sign... You are now guilty before the state. And you have a legal deficit to the state that you have to pay in order to be in right standing with the state. That's the kind of guilt that we have as physical creatures. Now, God did not leave us without some sort of system to deal with this guilt that we have. God set up, in the ancient Near East, a sacrificial system for dealing with the actual guilt of breaking the moral law. And interestingly enough, our passage today actually hints at Jesus' sacrifice. So John chapter 6, what it starts with, is it starts by reminding people that the Passover is coming. The entire chapter that we've read is marked by this. It's colored by this. For those of you who don't remember what a Passover feast was, it was an appointed feast where a lamb would be taken for each household and would be killed at twilight. It would be roasted and consumed and eaten in haste. 
in remembrance of the Lord's grace and passing over the houses of his people and not killing their firstborn when they were in Egypt. The blood of the lamb becomes a sign to the people that reminds them of the Lord's grace in sparing his people and in setting them free. Do you know what John the Baptist calls Jesus in the book of John? He says, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. The imagery of the Passover is being utilized and replaced in this text. The Lamb of God is coming as a sacrifice to buy his people back and to pay the deficit owed, to redeem them and to claim them. The cost, though, in this thick sense, this ritualistic sense, wherein our guilt is paid for by a sacrifice, the cost is disturbing. The cost is the flesh of a god. Further, to receive the gift of eternal life freely given, we have to eat of the bread of life. Jesus says that the bread that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. Christianity is not just a clear religion. It is not just a religion of philosophy. It's not just a worldview. It's thick. It's thick with ritual and with blood and with sacrifice. This leads us to the third point, though really, I think, I think we've already gotten there. The bread of life unsettles. The bread of life unsettles. In order to take the teachings of Jesus seriously without passing over some texts or moving too quickly, we're going to find that many of his teachings, like this one today, are actually a bit unsettling. They're a bit disturbing. Jesus, in our text, manages, remember, to go from 5,000 people to 12. So let's turn briefly to the text again and be unsettled by the word of our Lord. John 6, 52 through 58 says this, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever gorges themselves on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In order to receive the depth of what's occurring here, we have to sit in the discomfort of the message. The maker of the human mouth and esophagus and stomach is allowed to play with its imagery. And in, cre- in, in receiving the bread of life into our bodies, Jesus says we actually receive union with him, just as he is unified with the Father. The true life is available to us only in the breaking of his body, in the shedding of his blood and in the consumption of his flesh. This is where I would pull out the unknown children's book. I was reading this book with my daughter the other day. We were doing bedtime. You know, we're kind of sleepy. I'm like, okay, Hazel, pick out your three books. 
And so she picks out this book and two other books. And I'm like, oh, Whale Fall Cafe. This is so cute. Look at this. Those of you who can't see it, there's, there's a little shark here. And he has a cute little red hat on his head. And, you know, there's like a little flounder and he's eating a squid. It's like, oh, this is cute. My daughter loves sea creatures and animals and she'll probably be a veterinarian. We open it up. You have, you have a bowhead whale. You have a, a mink whale. I actually don't know what that is. A sperm whale, a humpback whale, a blue whale. It's like, oh, this is great. Hazel, thanks for picking this book. And then we get to the first page and it says, Whale Fall Cafe. And those of you who can't see it, there's a really disturbing image. Uh, if any of you are queasy, you may want to step out at this point. Um, of this whale at the bottom of the ocean. And there's like these little stink lines or something coming off him. Maybe those are eels. And there's just chunks of this whale that are missing. And he's sitting there on the bottom of it. I'm like, oh, Hazel, are you sure? Sweetie, are you sure you, you want to read this book? This doesn't look like it's, it's really a book that you're going to enjoy. Anyways, the book goes on. And it turns out this whale fall cafe, I didn't know what a whale fall was until reading this book. A whale fall is when a whale dies and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Now, a small whale, an orca, represents around 3,300 pounds of food. That's a huge amount of food for sea creatures to come and eat. But a blue whale represents around 330,000 pounds of food. There's a lot of food. So a whale falls the process by which a whale dies. It perishes and sinks to the bottom. You guys can't see this. I'm reading this with my daughter, and I'm like, oh, this is so bad. She's going to be scarred. Um, and so there's these little sharks and these barracudas coming, and they're taking bites out of this whale that's sinking to the bottom of the ocean. And, and it gets to the bottom, and so normally the, the animals that live in the benthic zone, the lowest you know, section of the ocean, they're eating little bits of food that fall from the sky, kind of like manna, actually, funny enough. Um, and for them, a whale, let's say a 300,000-pound whale, represents around 4,000 years of food. It's huge. And so they start, you know, feasting on the body of this whale, and it gets, it gets really disturbing. And anyway, so we keep going. I'm not going to make you guys read the whole children's book. Um, but it keeps going, and after years, you'd think, oh, well, you know, it's going to feed creatures for maybe one or two years, but it doesn't stop, actually. After years, two, three years, the, the meat of the whale is gone, and all that's left is this skeleton that is now on the bottom of this ocean. And these small, uh, they're called osidax worms, and these different forms of bacteria, they come, and they actually latch themselves to the bones of this whale. And what ends up happening is the skeleton of this whale and its sinews and cartilage, it creates an ecosystem that doesn't just last for two, three, four, five years. It lasts hundreds of years. Sometimes up to a thousand years. The body of a whale sinking to the bottom of an ocean can create an ecosystem lasting up to a thousand years. What can the body of a god do? A whale weighs 3,000 pounds. How do you measure 
the body of a god. The whale came down, not out of some sense of will and duty, but out of its death. It just fell. It sank, lifeless, to the bottom of the ocean. Jesus came down to do the will of the Father from heaven. He went from incorporeal, infinite, to finite. He put on flesh. How absurd. The whale is eaten and creates a kingdom that lasts for a thousand years, an ecosystem that lasts for a thousand years. And then it dies and it's gone and it's forgotten. Jesus died, invites us to eat of his body, and he comes back to life again. He comes back to life again and he rules and reigns over us. He is drawing us into this ecosystem that he has created with his body. He is the greater whale. Now many of you at this point have probably remembered the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to do the Lord's Supper. John is going to do the Lord's Supper. But it's such a beautiful image of the union that we receive in him from his gift to us. What the Lord's Supper does is it actually reminds us in part that we have an eating disorder. We have a spiritual eating disorder. We have to allow ourselves to be unsettled by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ to receive what he has for us instead of looking to our marriages, to our parenting styles, to sexual satisfaction, to education, to control, to the satisfaction of our vocation, to financial security or a new toy or new trends as a way to fill that void that we have. The only thing that can fulfill the void that we have as humans is the body and blood of our Lord and Savior. In an eating disorder, you start to see true food and good drink as dangerous and scary and disgusting. We have to learn how to see the body and blood of Jesus as a delight, as a gift, as something that nourishes us. As he welcomes us into the ecosystem, into the kingdom that he is making by his sacrifice for us. Let us be unsettled and and shaken by the beautiful teachings and works of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have drawn us all here. We thank you that you taught us in such a way as to cause us to pause, to force us to think more deeply about this world and about your teachings. We thank you for your word. And Jesus, we thank you that you saw it fitting to become a human. We thank you that you might make yourself known to us. We thank you that you made the Father known to us and that you offer to us the bread of life. Spirit, would you shake us and unsettle us, and would you grow us more and more reliant upon you in our day-to-day lives? Triune God, we need you always. Be with us, we pray. Amen.